As we turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 4 and conclude this chapter, this section of the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, let's pray. Ask God to open our hearts and our minds to truly see the blessing of the Gospel and the wonder of Jesus Christ as we open his word this morning. We ask, Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see the wondrous things written of you in the law of God. The psalmist puts it, blessed is the man whose delight is in your word, whose delight is in the law, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit you would open, give us teachable minds and hearts that we'd have soft hearts, receptive to your word, that we'd be changed and impacted, more conformed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Passage upon which our teaching is based this morning is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And the text reads, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? As I was reading this week, doing research on this particular passage, I was looking up some background material and stuff like that, and I discovered that it isn't only boats that are in danger on the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, even to this very day, if a car is parked on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, there are signs warning drivers of what happens in high winds when a storm can suddenly erupt. Apparently, the sea can get very rough very quickly, almost instantaneously, and big waves can swamp cars parked on what looked like a very safe beach. Another writer put, the Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level, and then just miles to the north is Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet high. This is where my alternative career, if I wasn't called into the ministry, I think I would love to be a weatherman. Because I was doing this reading, and he goes, you've got cold air from the mountain. And I can picture, this is where I want to be Tom Sorrells or Tom Terry or one of those guys and, you know, have my map out here. But apparently, cold air from the mountain, Mount Hermon, can come down continually, and it clashes with the warm air from the Sea of Galilee. And as a result, storms can emerge, actually to hurricane strength, quite quickly. If you think about the context and the narrative here, this had to be an incredible storm because who's Jesus in the boat with? Aren't some of those guys fishermen? Didn't we read that somewhere? That what they did, their day job, so to speak, was working on the sea? And the text tells us they were in a panic for their lives. We've said from the beginning that the interpretive key, the hermeneutical key that we called it, For the Gospel of Mark is found right away in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, when Mark says, here's what it's all about. 
you would now interpret everything in light of this. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So in other words, this is not about what we're to do. This is not about us. It's not about life principles. Mark is not a life coach. This is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said that that good news is the good news of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. That the long, in the person, in the career, and in the aims, and in the work of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited kingdom of God had begun. It's pretty interesting that one of the prominent features of Mark's gospel, and actually of all the gospels for that matter, but we really notice it in this particular passage, is this attention to detail. Mark here is being a faithful reporter. In this case, he's getting an eyewitness account from Peter. Peter is kind of saying, hey, Mark, this is what was going on. And even notice some of the details that were going on. Other boats were there. And then the fact that he was asleep on the stern. I don't know which way to point for stern or, or bow or anything. I'm not a fisherman. And he was on a cushion. I want to know, was it a memory foam pillow? What was he, you know? But are you picking up the details in this? Richard Bauckham, who's a New Testament scholar, has a book. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he says that one of the marks of an eyewitness account is irrelevant detail. He says, composed fictional stories contain details that move the narrative along or convey a message that the author wants to get across. But eyewitnesses, faithful reporting, records many details simply because they happened, simply because of the detail. So in other words, Peter told Mark, by the way, there were other boats with us and a hurricane came up. And Peter says, Jesus was asleep on the stern. And Peter says to Mark, he was on a cushion. And why would Mark then record these details? Because he wants us to know this is history. This is fact. This is truth. From an application standpoint, this is one of the things that lets us know the trustworthiness of the gospel accounts. The trustworthiness of the New Testament scriptures. The trustworthiness of this incredible narrative that on face value just seems to be danger and rescue. But what is it? It is the unleashing of the power of the kingdom of God. And what do we learn of the unleashing of the power of the kingdom of God here? We learn two things. We learn, one, that Jesus' kingdom power is complete or comprehensive. We learn of the completeness of his power. And we learn of his extravagant love. We learn of the comprehensive scope of his power, the complete power and the extravagant love. Funny, when I was looking through the story and just kind of reading over and living with the narrative for a while and preparing, I couldn't help but think of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And young Lucy, little girl Lucy, appearing on Aslan and seeing Aslan and hearing about Aslan, the Christ figure in the story for the first time, and that very famous line where she asks about Aslan, is he safe? And you can almost hear in her voice, I love Lewis's writing, is he trustworthy? Do I dare to draw near? And she's told, oh no, Lucy, he is not safe, but he is good. Think about this. We have seen Jesus demonstrate his authority throughout this gospel. We've seen him unleash his power. In the healing of the leper, we saw his authority over disease. We saw his authority and his sovereignty over the spiritual realm when he exercised the man with the unclean spirit. We saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law. 
We've seen him claim he is Lord of the Sabbath, where he's not just instructing. He doesn't just teach you, oh, by the way, here's some principles to do on the Sabbath. He basically says, no, I'm the Sabbath itself. And here we see his power once again unleashed in the calming of the storm. Again, he's not teaching about power. He is power in the flesh. He is Lord of the supernatural. He's Lord over every realm. As Abraham Kuyper, theologian of a previous seminary, former prime minister said, there is not one square inch of the cosmos in which Jesus Christ does not say, I am Lord. Who is this king? And look at this. The story is actually quite simple. And yet the implications are incredible. Here they are. They're out on the boat. and A storm comes up suddenly. And the disciples are in a panic. They're terrified for their lives. One of the things that we're going to see, as you note the flow of the story, and we'll get to this, notice they go from terror to terror, but a different terror. Fear to fear. Fear over their circumstances to fear over who is this person, who is this king that we're confronted with. But here in this case, they're terrified for their lives. Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. Again, notice the eyewitness detail. Peter is telling Mark exact details that he's asleep on a cushion. They wake Jesus up, and again, we'll deal with this in a few moments, but notice what they say to him. If you look, they wake him up, and they don't say, wait a second, you're powerful enough, do something. They go, don't you care about us? Isn't that what we're like when we suffer? You know, I want you to examine yourself. Think about yourself for a second. What do we do when the storms of life hit? What do we do? One of the great temptations, I know it is for me, and I would wager to say it probably is for most of us, is to say, why, Lord, are you allowing this to happen? Why are you letting this happen? Lord, aren't you good? See, I don't, I don't think we doubt too much the power of the Lord. We struggle with the goodness of the Lord. The disciples, being very human, are doing the same thing. Lord, don't you care? They wake him up, don't you care? And then, of course, what does Jesus say? It says he woke up, and it almost looks like he doesn't even rub the sleep out of his eyes. And I love the humanity of Jesus here. He's taking a nap. That's justification for me, by the way, to sleep some this week. If in the humanity of Jesus, he's taking a nap, it says he awoke. And what does he do? He rebukes the wind and says to the sea, um, shut up. In other words, peace, be still. Are you not amazed at the complete, awesome, sovereign power of the Lord? Commentators remind us of a couple things going on here first. The first, how does Jesus do it? He does it through the power of his word. This is not a Charlton Heston movie. Roll up your sleeves, get your staff, come out here, over here. This is the utter simplicity of the word of Christ. He speaks and reality is brought into motion. Now remember I said simple story, amazing implications. What are the implications? What is our attitude towards the Word of God? Do we expect that the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, has the power to actually give you the personality of Jesus Christ? Being Christ-like. And you want to know what being Christ-like looks like? And then I'm going to ask you, do you believe that Jesus, by his word and spirit, simple means, has the power to actually, what does the personality of Jesus look like? Well, let's start with the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. 
What a great picture of the character of Jesus. Humble, broken, mournful, lamenting, hungering and thirsting for justice, pure in heart, a single-minded devotion with one will, purity of heart, being a peacemaker. Or what about the fruit of the Spirit? I think that's a wonderful picture of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or 1 Corinthians 13. You want to see the personality of Jesus? He's patient. He's kind. He doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. He is not arrogant, or is he ever rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. He doesn't impose his way. Even though he's the sovereign God, he doesn't impose his way on others. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things, and he endures all things. And do you believe that by the simple power of the Word of God, imbibed by the Spirit of God, that God has the power to give you and make you and conform you to that kind of personality? Do you think maybe one of the implications is we limit the power of Christ? When we go, I can't change. I can't do that. I can't grow in that. Have you ever thought about reading 1 Corinthians 13 maybe every day for the next year and kind of go, am I growing and being less resentful? That's part of the personality of Jesus. Am I growing and being less rude? Have you even thought that rudeness is not consistent with the character and the personality of Jesus? And do you believe? See, this challenges us at a fundamental level. The narrative here in Mark is about the power of the word. Do you really trust it? Do we confess it, but do we functionally trust it? Or, as R.C. Sproul so rightly says, are we not functional atheists? We believe, but do we really believe? Do we functional believe? See, and the second thing is, here's Jesus. By the power of his word, he says, Shalom. Peace, be still. And the second thing commentators tell us, even more astonishing, the storm actually obeys them. Like a compliant child, when Jesus speaks, reality occurs. The wind dies down. The sea is completely calm. And verse 39, when it says great calm, it actually could be translated dead calm. We are talking total, unequivocal, supreme, preeminent, sovereign control. This is even more amazing when you think about how would a first century reader or hearer take in this particular message? What would, if you consider the meaning of the sea to a first century reader who's immersed in the worldview of the Old Testament scriptures and ancient cultures, Tim Keller writes, in ancient cultures and legends, the sea was a symbol of unstoppable destruction. It was a symbol of disorder and chaos. The ocean in full fury was an ungovernable, inexorable power that only God could control. Just to give you a cursory look, a flyover, if you would, of Old Testament scripture, Psalm 89 says, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you will still them. Look how the sea is portrayed and pictured. It rages. It horses. It's not this calm, tranquil. Psalm 65, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples? 
And then in Psalm 93, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. We've talked about the inbreaking, the inauguration of the kingdom of God. That's already inaugurated, but not yet complete. John, the evangelist in Revelation 21, got a picture of what the completion, the consummation of that kingdom would look like. And he says in Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And we have to be careful there, because that does not mean there's no water. It doesn't mean you don't get to see the beauty of the oceans anymore. But remember what in an ancient culture the sea represented. It represented chaos, tumult, death, destruction. John is saying, with the consummation, the completion of the rule and the reign of God, seen in the restoration of all things. That's why I said salvation is so huge. It is about the renewal of all things so that one day, as John says, there will be no more death nor mourning, nor crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And Jesus speaks into that and gives us a hint of that when he says, peace, quiet, be still. He was exercising complete authority and sovereignty over the creation, such that chaos and tumult came to cease, came to nothing. All you have to do, this happens to me, I may turn my phone off at night while I'm asleep and I wake up and all of a sudden I get alerts, email, news. You ever notice it's almost always bad news? I just want once at 6 a.m. when my alarm goes off for the alert to come up and say, puppies, that would be nice. No, it says missiles or protests. I just want puppies once on my alert at 6 a.m. But you know what I can't wait for? Golf would be okay, too, by the way. I could, I could handle golf or puppies. But I want you to hear what this is saying. When Jesus says, peace be still, he is saying death and destruction, chaos and disorder, tumult and turmoil and tension and wars and rumors of war and cancer and disease do not get the last word. Jesus is, and Jesus gets the last word. Do you believe that? That's complete power. But you know what? Complete power is not enough to get us to worship him. Complete power is enough to get us to respect, maybe even being in awe, but it doesn't draw forth the sense of joyful, reverent wonder that says, who is this king that even the sea and the wind obeys him? The only thing that does that is extravagant love. Elizabeth Elliot has a quote. She puts wonderfully the message of this narrative when she says, God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will, and that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. The disciples we learn. See, that kind of worship is great. How do we get there? How do we do that? Power alone is not going to get that. Look at the disciples. 
The disciples are absolutely terrified. And I, for one, understand that. I get that. Panic, you know, I, I kind of, I'm like, you know, I want to say, would you join me in my panic? I get that real well. But if you look at this text, Jesus quiets the storm, and then he says in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And scholars point out that that actually can be translated, and maybe even a better translation would be, where is your faith? In other words, and here's what they're saying. They're saying, we always have faith. The question is not the strength of your faith. It's not the amount of your faith. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. When he says, where is your faith? Have you still no faith? He's basically saying, is your faith in the right object? For your faith needs to be in the one who is not only complete, comprehensive power, but in the one who is extravagant, over-the-top, loving power. Again, I love how Tim Keller illustrates it. He, gives, he just puts it in a way I can understand. He says, picture two men approaching two ladders about to go climb up on a roof. Say they're wanting to clean their gutters or something like that. I wouldn't know anything of what that's about. But here they are, two men approaching two ladders. One man approaches it, and he approaches it with great vibrancy and strength and vigor. And runs right up there and stuff. The other man's timid. I'm not sure I can get on this. And he's slow, and he gets on the first rung, and his hands are shaking and stuff. And he says, but the first man... No matter how strong his faith is, no matter how great and powerful his faith is, if the ladder on rung six has a broken rung, guess what happens? He falls down, he breaks his arm. And the other man, even if the weak faith, tiny faith, timid faith, but he's in the right object, a ladder that is strong, and a ladder that can hold him, a ladder that can do the job, even if it's just one rung at a time, he'll make it to his goal. He says, we need to have the right object of our faith. See, and Jesus is saying it's not a matter of just simply looking at the power, but you've got to look at the goodness and the extravagant love of Jesus. And that's where if you look at this, it is the love and the goodness of Jesus that the disciples are questioning. Verse 38 again. Go back to verse 38. It's very important. Teacher. Do you not care that we are perishing? What are they suspecting? What are they suspicious of? They're suspicious of Jesus' goodness. They're not doubting his power here. This is the way it's been ever since the fall in the garden, back in Genesis chapter 3, where our root sin is this kind of deep-seated suspicion that obedience to God is really what will make us happy. That obedience to God is what we were designed for, what we were made for. One commentator put about Genesis 3, he said, this is a flat charge in Genesis chapter 3 that God does not have our best interests in mind. In other words, this is to say, if you obey God, you won't be happy. He writes, this is the big lie that lives in the heart of every sin and every sinner. This is always the root of any particular disobedience. We don't believe that God is for us. See, what do we do when trouble comes? What do we do when suffering hits? We question, why is God, why is Jesus allowing this? Why are bad things happening? Why is he letting this happen? We question if God really loved us, if God really 
had our best interests at heart. He wouldn't allow this to happen. Bad things wouldn't happen to me. We say, do you not care? Do you not care that I'm perishing here in my loneliness? Do you not care that I'm perishing here in my frustration? Do you not care that I'm perishing here in my disease? Do you not care that I'm perishing here in my failure? Whatever it might be. Tim Keller points out that when Jesus asks, where is your faith? Why are you so afraid? That his question to them has behind it this thought. He's challenging their premise. He's saying to them, the premise behind your question is wrong. You should have known better. He says, I do allow people I love to go through storms. You have no reason to panic. Their premise, that if Jesus loved them, he wouldn't let bad things happen to them, was wrong. He can love somebody and still let bad things happen to them because he is God and because he knows better than they do. And he knows better than we do. Think about this in the life of Jesus. Who does God love more than anyone else in the universe? Isn't it Jesus? And isn't Jesus the only true... See, they're not suffering here. This is, this is happening because just simply a fallen world. A storm erupts. But they're not innocent sufferers because none of us are innocent sufferers. The only one who's truly an innocent sufferer is Jesus. He's the only one who has no sin. And what happened to Jesus? God loves him more than anyone in the universe, and did God allow something bad to happen to him? Think about it. The cross. And again, let's imagine ourselves, put ourselves in the shoe of someone hearing or reading this in the first century. What would the echoes be of a first century reader opening up and reading and he- or hearing spoken the Gospel of Mark? Tim Keller again rightly reminds us they'd be hearing echoes of the prophet Jonah. He says, Mark has deliberately laid out this account using language that is parallel, almost identical to the language of the famous Old Testament account of Jonah. Both if you look at Jonah 1 and here, what do you have? So you remember the story of Jonah? Jonah's given a command, isn't he? I want you to go, I'm calling and commissioning you to go preach the gospel to Nineveh. That is what is best for you and for the people of Nineveh. What was Jonah's attitude? Thanks, but no thanks. You tell me go west, I'm going east. I don't like those Ninevites. I'm headed to Tarshish. Tarshish is nice in the spring. And he gets on a boat, and what does Jonah chapter 1 tells us? So here's Jesus and Jonah, both in a boat. Here's Jesus and Jonah, both go through a hurricane, go through a storm. Here's Jesus and Jonah, both sound asleep. We learn in Jonah chapter 1 that Jonah was asleep while the sailors are panicking for they were perishing. Both in Jesus' account in Mark chapter 4 and in Jonah chapter 1, the sailors wake up the sleeper, say, we're going to die, do something. And in both cases, there's a miraculous divine intervention and the sea is calm. Sounds like two almost identical stories, does it not? Except there's just one difference. In the midst of the storm, Jonah says to the sailors, Jonah chapter 1, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. And they threw him into the sea, and the sea calms down. 
We're reading Mark 4 and that doesn't happen, does it? Or does it? Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. And remember I said when you read the Gospels, you're always looking for how Scripture interprets Scripture. We have to look at Mark with the rest of the Gospel in view, with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is speaking about the sign of Jonah, and he says, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Obviously speaking and applying the story and the narrative and the account to himself. Dr. Keller writes, what is he saying? What does he mean? And he says precisely this. He says, someday I'm going to calm all storms. I'm going to still all waves. I'm going to destroy destruction. I'm going to break brokenness. I'm going to kill death. How can he do that? He answers the cross. He can do it only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice, the storm of what we owe for our own wrongdoing. That storm was not calmed, not until it swept Jesus away. Paul writes to the church at Rome that God shows his love, extravagant love, over-the-top love, beyond-imagination love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The only way you're going to move from fear of life, fear of circumstances, to fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, as Andrew has been teaching us in our men's ministry, fear of the Lord that leads to an utter wonder and fascination with Jesus. Where we are gripped with a holy fascination with Jesus, that we can't get enough of the word. That we hear about discipleship hour and we're saying, I want more than that. Give me two. We want to be in the word. Give me more than that. Where we are rushing to the house of the Lord. The only thing that will bring that kind of fascination with the Lord is the extravagant love of the Lord. Where you go, as they did at the end, who is this? That he would go under the waves, under the sea. He would let them come over him so that we would never be sunk. That we go through storms of life, and they're real storms, and they hurt. And we're not to deny the pain and the hurt. In fact, one of the things I strongly believe we need to learn better as a Christian body is how to lament, how to really go through pain without denial and without asking why, but doing like Jesus did in his humanity when he appeared before Lazarus' tomb. And as God, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but what did he do? He stopped to weep. In his humanity, he went, death is not the way it is supposed to be. This is not right. And it is so not right, I will go to the cross and be raised from the dead to make it right. And he lamented. And instead, we waste our energy asking why, rather than coming alongside people, putting an arm around them, and saying, let's cry together, let's weep together, let's pray together, let's suffer together, let's be human together. 
extravagant love. He who went under the chaos, under everything that the sea meant, under the tumult, under the pain, under the ultimate waves, so that even though we go through storms, they're temporary. What we have waiting for us is resurrection. What we have waiting for us, see the ultimate storm, the storm of God's wrath and God's justice can't touch us. Who is this? Do you say that? Do you desire to say that? Who is this king that even the wind and the seas obey him? Complete power is not going to bring you to worship like that, but extravagant love will. Lord God, I pray that we'd be fascinated with you. I pray that the gospel would move us, and I don't mean emotionally, that it would really impact our being, mind, heart, will, affections, that we would be moved to worship, to holistic, whole person wonder to say, who is this? That that would draw us to meditate on the word day and night. That would draw us to truly being a distinctive people that loves Not with a conservative love, not with a liberal love, but loves with a third-way love, a Jesus sort of love, a love that the world doesn't get to see. Pray that we'd be fascinated with Jesus and that the word would truly change us. That we'd say, who is this? With this kind of power and this kind of extravagant love. In Jesus' name, amen.